Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome your host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changers. Hello and welcome again to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, welcome to a show that where we try to give uh, our listeners, whether they be pharmacists, whether they be providers, uh, just interested listeners maybe, um, uh, the latest uh, dope, if you will, on, uh, on pharmacotherapy studies and uh, you know the, the latest things that are going to affect uh, really kind of boots on the ground providers. So we, we try not to, to, to drift too far in, in, into uh, the weeds with, with stuff. Uh, but we really try to try to pick articles, try to pick guidelines, try to pick just interesting things going on that's going to affect you know the everyday man or woman on the street, if you will, provider or pharmacist. So I'm uh, pleased to welcome once again my frequent co-pilot and the guy who really kind of keeps the lights on and, and running for this podcast, uh, Jake Galdo from CE Impact. So welcome, Jake, uh, to the program. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. Um, and as always, we appreciate uh, Jake's expertise, not only in the world of regulatory stuff, but he's also a community pharmacist. So he is one of those boots on the ground pharmacists who sees day-to-day stuff. And one of the things that pharmacists, of course, do a lot of is provide flu vaccines. And that's actually kind of you, uh, a kind of a sideways ap- uh, approach to what our topic is today, which is a paper that came out of the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease just a couple weeks ago. In fact, it's still in preprint. So you could only really, it hasn't actually been like fully published in, in, in the journal and in, in print form but you can get a preprint of, of the accepted manuscript and on their website, and we'll have a link to that in our show notes. It's an interesting study uh, that looked at association between the development of Alzheimer's disease, hence where it's being published, and influenza vaccination. And so, you know, given everything going on with vaccines, good and misinformation and all the other stuff, I thought, you know, both Jake and I thought this was a pretty good paper to kind of go through. So, you know, first, before we get into this, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the burden of Alzheimer's disease, which I think all clinicians are well aware of. Currently, it's estimated about 6 million people have Alzheimer's disease in the United States. There is some data suggesting that overall dementia incidences are probably decreasing, probably due to improvements in cardiovascular health. Because remember that one of the more common causes besides Alzheimer's disease of dementia is vascular dementia. People have had, you know, multiple little strokes that have basically knocked out enough of their brain that leads to dementia. Um, those numbers are going down because we're getting better at treating, you know, uh, uh, vascular health. But the, the sad fact, is, is that Alzheimer's has not really probably very little to do with that. And, and, and of course, how we treat and prevent Alzheimer's is, is still very, very much in the air. You know, they say that there's going to be a tsunami of Alzheimer's patients as the population ages and as uh, the baby boomers start to reach the age where Alzheimer's is, is really common. And, you know, we're already seeing that, I think, with a lot of baby boomers in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And, and I think we're going to see more and more of this. And as you might imagine, the uh, the impact on, on families, the impact on healthcare systems is, is, is significant. And so, trying to find better ways to diagnose, treat, and prevent Alzheimer's disease is obviously going to be pretty important. As a pharmacist, of course, you know, treatment is my game. It's my bag. So, of course, you know, you you think about the treatments that are currently available for for Alzheimer's, and and I'm talking about, you know, you know, tried and true meds like, you know, uh, Nepazil and Mamantine and stuff like that. 
you know, I'll, I'll be honest, I've always been a bit of a nihilist when it comes to those drugs, because I never really thought the studies showed that they actually did what I think most patients and their families want these medications to do, which is keep people out living in the community and out of the nursing home and out of institutional care and stuff like that. And the 82,000 study, which now is 22 years old, you know, looked at denepazil in patients with early Alzheimer's and found that it did not do that. It, you know, yeah, it definitely improved the scales that they used to determine, you know, depth of, of disease in Alzheimer's, but it really didn't make a change in and the time it took for people to end up being, you know, in some sort of observed or monitored care. So, you know, again, I've, I've never been a big user of those medications or recommender of those medications because of that. So the bottom line is we need, we need good and, and, and more uh, uh, actual good treatments. And of course, part of that has always been said that those medications may very well work, but we just, but by the time that somebody is recognized with dementia, it's probably too late, you know, and, and so of course, there's been a whole, you know, whole stream of research for Alzheimer's trying to diagnose it much, much earlier, you know, using, you know, functional MRI and things along those lines. So, you know, that's, that's kind of a background of Alzheimer's. Now, what does that have to do with influenza vaccine? Well, you know, we know that, that, that uh, uh, anyone who has a significant systemic immune response, uh, it can have lasting effects on the brain and, and multiple studies have suggested that people who have multiple uh, serious infections are more likely to develop dementia down the road. And, and again, that, I'm not saying that it's the cause or anything, but is it possible that the inflammatory response that occurs with uh, yeah, serious infections, you know, does something to the brain and may lead to an increased risk or rate of cognitive decline, particularly if older patients develop that. And so, uh, and this, this connection or, or association has been found with numerous types of, of infections, including uh, influenza, of course, pneumonia, herpes infections, urinary tract infections, sepsis, and of course, more, most recently, COVID-19. And again, we're not saying those are the causes of dementia, but there's an association. So, you know, the theory then is that if these inflammatory insults uh, due to serious infection may predispose people to developing dementia, is it possible that if we can prevent that with, with vaccines that we decrease the risk of dementia? And, and so, and that's not just true for influenza. There's actually been multiple previous studies that suggested uh, that there is a, a decreased risk of, of dementia associated with prior exposure to a whole bunch of, of adult vaccinations. Now, of course, childhood vaccinations, no, but people who have gotten Tdap later in life, polio vaccine later in life, the BCG vaccine, for tuberculosis, uh, shingles vaccine, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, most of these studies have found that those patients tend to, tend to have a decreased risk of, of Alzheimer's. Now, of course, the big question there is the confounder of if you're someone who tends to get vaccines, you probably tend to have overall better health. You probably tend to have maybe higher health literacy, maybe have you know, higher socioeconomic strata. And, and those all things are all associated with the increased risk of, of dementia as well. So again, I, I'm not saying that this proves it, but there's an association there and we're not really sure so, you know, uh, what the cause of that association is. Now, when we focus in on influenza vaccination, the problem with the this previous studies that have been done, it have really been, you know, limited sample size, uh, demographic homogeneity. So, you know, like, was it really one small population that really isn't, isn't representative of, of the general U.S. population? And, uh, the, you know, they looked at patients who had maybe one particular uh, disease state. So they looked at patients, for example, who had chronic kidney disease who got an influenza vaccine. So, um, you know, that uh, that's one problem. 
problem. The other problem, of course, is that whenever you're doing studies looking at Alzheimer's disease that are retrospective in nature, really even probably prospective in nature, is, is do you for sure know you have Alzheimer's disease? Now, of course, Alzheimer's is the most common cause of dementia worldwide, especially in the United States. But it's worth noting that that uh, when you're using when you're doing retrospective studies, um, you have to use some sort of database, and so that often means you're relying on ICD-10 or ICD-9 uh, uh, codes to to, to uh, find the patients who have dementia. And study after study has really shown that that we underdiagnose dementia, at least Alzheimer's dementia. And so patients may have you know may have an ICD-9 or 10 of just general dementia or senile dementia, but actually you know true Alzheimer's, which again is the only way to truly diagnose, of course, is to do a brain biopsy, which of course I know I would be reluctant to do, and I think most people would be as well. So, you know, we have to, just, yeah, it's one of those, well, gee, it's the most common cause of dementia. So the odds are they have Alzheimer's disease. That's always been a strike in that when you're looking at, at databases, it may not capture the entire population of patients who actually have Alzheimer's dementia as opposed to other dementia. So because of all that, uh, again, we have a preprint in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease that I thought was a fairly elegantly done study uh, that looks at this association between, all, uh, between influenza vaccines and incident Alzheimer's dementia, which I believe has implications for pharmacists as well as providers. So Again, it's a gigantic database study, and this was obtained from the Optum uh, Clean Informatics Data Mart, which is uh, one of the biggest uh, uh, database claims systems in the, in the United States. It's pretty comprehensive in that it looks at medical claims, pharmacy claims, administrative claims, laboratory result data, uh, basically for both privately insured patients or Medicare Advantage or Part D enrollees. So again, a wide number of patients. The claims is verified, adjudicated, and adjusted uh, prior to inclusion into this database. So it, it seems to be fair fairly, you know, accurate, and then they do go through it kind of with, with, a, with a kind of a fine-tooth cone, make sure the data is semi-accurate. They also pulled mortality data for this study, which they got from the Social Security Administration master file, which is the standard way to do that. So how the study was set up is that they, they looked at the CDM data, this, this data mark data from 2009 to 2019, so a 10-year period, and then they had a look-back period that was defined as September 1, 2009 through August 31st, 2015. So basically, they looked at at that when patients, you know, up to 2019, and then they went backwards for a look back period of about, about six years. And they, and they actually picked the six years intentionally because uh, uh, there was uh, previous studies that suggested a statistically significant relationship between influenza vaccine and incident dementia only after people had received at least six influenza vaccines. So that's kind of interesting that you know, receiving one or two didn't seem to have a relationship in this prior study, but you had to have at least six influenza vaccinations uh, before you found that the association against the decreased risk of developing Alzheimer's. So that's why they picked a six-year uh, look-back period. They included patients if they had an ICD-9 code with, within that look-back period and at least two records with an ICD code during the follow-up period of actual Alzheimer's dementia. They were excluded if their age at the start of follow-up was less than 65 years, if they already had a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, encephalopathy, or other dementia prior to the look-back period. Uh, also, they tried to sort out patients who might have had Alzheimer's before the look-back period if they had had a prescription filled for any drug that's indicated almost exclusively for Alzheimer's disease. So again, denepazil, galantamine, ribostigmine, or mamantine, which I mean, yes, there's some other uses for them, but they're 99% used for, for Alzheimer's disease. So patients younger than 65 at the start of flop were excluded uh, because this is the age at which Alzheimer's disease incidence becomes appreciable. And then the period in which the all, uh, influenza vaccinations were, were counted differed between the primary and the secondary analyses. For the primary analysis, influenza vaccinations were measured during the follow-up period and were counted only if they preceded the date of Alzheimer's disease onset 
censoring or the end of the follow-up period. So again, basically the influenza vaccines had to occur before the ICD-9 of 10, uh, ICD-10 or ICD-9 code of Alzheimer's disease was first indicated basically. Outcomes, uh, the, the outcome was incident Alzheimer's disease. And again, remember this is a database study. So how are they gonna tell that? Yes, you actually have Alzheimer's disease. And they did it uh, as either two or more AD related uh, uh, diagnosis codes or a pharmacy claim for any of these four medications that again are primarily indicated for Alzheimer's disease in a, in a 12 month period. Now you may argue, and I think, I think it is a reasonable criticism of the study that they that this obviously may, may miss mild cognitive impaired or early Alzheimer's disease patients were basically able to kind of you know get around and, and basically maintain their activities of daily living but still have some cognitive impairment. Um, I can tell you as, as someone who works and been working in a hospital for many years, we see many of these patients uh, who you know basically are, you know, I, I always tell my students kind of hanging on by their fingernails. They're they're just able to eat and dress themselves and get around and do do you know just what they need to do to stay to stay independent. Then it all it takes is one bad infection or you know, you know, something along those lines, and you know, they fall or something like that, and that's it. That they kind of the game is up at that point, basically. So, now again, they note that Alzheimer's disease empirically accounts for about eighty percent of all dementia cases in patients over age sixty-five. Again, they they point out that 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 people who that that the actual number of patients uh, in in database studies is usually far lower than that, and so they had to kind of kind of kind of deal with that in 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 their study, basically. So, um, they for the primary analysis, they ex estimated what was what was I thought was kind of interesting, and it's called the average treatment effect of flu vaccination using a propensity score matched cohort. I thought that was that was kind of an interesting way to approach this. So they actually did the analysis two ways, and this was the primary way they did it. And then for a secondary analysis, they approached it using a time to event analysis in an unmatched sample, which is actually what I've kind of seen before. So the first one I thought though was quite interesting is is how do you do this kind of analysis that kind of shows that? And I thought I thought the way they did that was was was, was quite interesting. So we'll, we'll talk about that here in, in just a bit, but um, getting back to um, the study itself. Uh, so that was kind of the analysis. So what, how many patients did they end up in their database? And again, this is a huge database. And so you know, if they looked at the Optum database, if they looked at patients who just had uh, uh, greater than two records for an ICD-10 code or with the, with the medications, they had actually an N of about 11 million patients, <laughs> just amazing. And so when they divvy that up into patients who had zero flu vaccinations during follow-up, that was about 7 million patients. And then patients who had greater than six flu vaccinations during follow-up, that was about 4 million patients. So again, uh, quite, quite a few groups. And then of course they divvied those up into the ones who either had uh, incident Alzheimer's disease, either positive or negative during follow-up in both those cohort arms. And that led to about uh, 3 million records. So again, uh, you know, much, much larger uh, than, than, than had ever been seen before. In, in, in these in these studies. So I, was, I thought that was kind of interesting. When they took a look at the statistics, because this is a propensity match score, after they did their propensity model, uh, they basically found that there was very, very little differences between the two. And in fact, um, uh, after matching, they found that the standard mean differences for all the covariates they used, and of course, in this kind of model, they're going to be using age and gender and socioeconomic status and medications and all sorts of stuff as different confounders in their propensity model. And they found that, there, that uh, all the standard mean differences between the 
local variance were less than 0.1, and they had, that was their pre-specified criterion for balancing between the treated and un, untreated patients. So uh, again, when, when it was all said and done, the, the frequency of incident Alzheimer's disease among the propensity scatch, uh, score matched flu vaccinated and unvaccinated patients, they found that the uh, um, absolute risk reduction over a four-year period was actually pretty significant, 0.034, which was very statistically significant and actually corresponded to a number needed to treat about 30 patients. So to kind of repeat that, that means that in their analysis, they found that for every 30 patients who had, had at least six uh, influenza vaccines, you know, yearly for six years, uh, they found that the incident uh, number after con- uh, adjusting for all these confounders was significantly lower and you'd only have to treat 30 patients. 30 patients would only have to have six influenza vaccines to avoid one case of, of Alzheimer's disease. That's pretty potent data. Now, again, this is a retrospective study, so it doesn't prove that that's the cause. But I mean, you know, given the, the benefits of influenza vaccine and just, you know, preventing influenza, that's pretty interesting. So they did exclude nonspecific and senile dementia codes in a secondary sensitivity analysis, uh, found that absolute risk reduction uh, was, was actually even lower um, at a uh, absolute risk reduction of 0.016. And so that, that was that was pretty impressive as well. So, you know, bottom line was that was that they, they found, you know, a, a significant association between people who got at least six influenza of vaccines over the years and a decreased risk of, 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 of uh, dementia. Now, um, you know, again, you know, for the fifth time, this does not prove, and I don't want anyone to run around saying, well, you know, the, the, the Game Changers podcast says influenza vaccine prevents you from getting dementia. Again, we can't, even with, with a well-done propensity match study like this, we really can't prove for sure that the influenza vaccine was responsible for it. But basically, you know, on the whole, uh, people who got at least six were significantly less likely, and when they did a, sub, a sub-analysis, they found that patients who received at least one influenza vaccine were even 40% less likely than their non-vaccinated peers to develop incident. Alzheimer's disease during a four-year follow-up period. So, you know, again, they tried their best to, to deal with potential bi- biases um, and indications by the healthy vaccine effect, which again, you know, people who get vaccines just tend to be healthier because they tend to, you know, see their doctor more and, and, and things along those lines. They, again, had a variety of de- uh, demographic medication and comorbidity data to match patients, again, for this propensity. Um, they also did, again, that secondary time to event analysis and, and, and found that a prior influenza vaccine was, was negatively associated with, with Alzheimer's disease risk. So the question then becomes, you know, again, why? Why would we see this association? The, the authors, I think, do, do a pretty good job of trying to explain the pathophysiology you know, of, of why this might be. Uh, the first is they know it might be influenza-specific mechanisms, including mitigation of damage secondary to influenza infection, or similarity between influenza proteins and the proteins that tend to cause Alzheimer's disease. And of course, as many of you know, our thoughts of what may actually cause or, or be the, the primary pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease has kind of been thrown into, into a loop, and, and Jake's going to talk a little bit about that if we get back from the break. So that's one potential uh, mechanism for what they found. The second is they say, well, maybe it's a non-influenza-specific training of the immune system that might be responsible for it. So basically, the, the body, if, if there is some sort of protein that arises that's responsible for Alzheimer's disease, is it possible that, that influenza vaccines train the immune system to, to knock that out before, before it actually leads to Alzheimer's? And then three, a non-influenza-specific change in the adaptive immune system via lymphocyte-mediated cross-reactivity. And again, they don't know if any of these are the real one. These are just, these are potential uh, hypotheses about why they may, may 
about this. So the $64 question is, so what do we do with this information? Again, you know, uh, you know, it doesn't prove that the getting uh, influenza vaccines prevents Alzheimer's, but I think it does do a couple of things is as far as fighting misinformation about vaccines. We're always hearing about how vaccines cause terrible problems and, and, and all this other stuff. And I, you know, I think even before COVID hit, you know, we had people who were reluctant to get the flu vaccine for a variety of, of reasons. And I think that, that, you know, when you hear, well, here, I heard, you know, that, that flu vaccines can cause, you know, uh, mental problems or cause, you know, dementia, you know, it's actually, no, actually the exact opposite. Actually, the, the evidence we have suggests that flu vaccines are associated with a dramatically decreased risk of influenza. You might even be able to use it as a carrot to help get, get people to get their flu vaccines. You know, people may not be particularly scared of getting the flu, but I don't know too many people who want to get dementia. <laughs> and so, you know, if you can say, look, we can't prove this, but there's no greater risk for getting influenza or get, getting the influenza vaccine. And there may be this, this corollary benefit, you know, this, maybe this is the carrot to get people in to get their, their yearly flu vaccines. And then, of course, this is information for future studies. If we, if the uh, neuroscientists can, can really do a deep dive in, into, and maybe they will find, hey, you know, this particular effect of vaccinations on the immune system seems to, you know, block the development of a protein or block, block the development of a plaque or something like that, that that may actually translate into future studies that might actually lead to therapeutic. So again, an interesting study. And, and again, you know, not, not saying that we get the flu vaccine to prevent to prevent Alzheimer's, but I'm saying that it certainly seems that there may be a corollary benefit that we don't truly understand completely how it happens and certainly doesn't hurt when we're trying to get people to get their flu vaccine, you know, anyway. So something to think about. Jake's going to give us his view on this as well as some other uh, interesting Alzheimer's information that's come about in the last several months. Welcome back again. And uh, why don't you tell me what you think about this paper? You're the one who kind of, you know, put it in front of me and said this might be a good idea. So what's your take on all of this? Thanks, Jeff, for having me, and thanks for breaking down the, the very technical nature of the, the article to allow me to just kind of pontificate over it. And, <laughs> and what I like about I mean, he did, and it was helpful. I will say, look at the article. There's some pretty pictures where they have actually like diagrams of people and they connect them and stuff. Um, but, you know, what I really like about this is it helps us just give another reason to, to encourage healthier lifestyles and really support vaccines. There's so much vaccine hesitancy that's still out there. Uh, we still have a lot of vaccine resistance. And I mean, heck, polio, polio is apparently back. But yeah, I saw that. And I can, I can tell you that as a community pharmacist, we're burned out. Like, we're just waiting for the people to show up and say, give me the vaccine. And we give them a vaccine and we call it a day. Um, and I recognize that we're all tired and we're all just, we're exhausted. But I think that this is another opportunity to really emphasize how we can support our communities. And one of the things that we can do from a practical standpoint is to do like targeted vaccine drives. Right. So if we know in September we're going to get a new COVID vaccine, we've got to do both boosters, focus on that. Come back in October and then do a flu campaign. In September, do a pneumonia campaign. Because I think part of the, the difficulty we sometimes see with the, the gaps in coverage with vaccines is like if the general patient shows up to the pharmacy and you do a true ACIP assessment of them, they're due and probably missing three, four, five vaccines uh, at once. And, and no patient wants to get four or five vaccines. We, we have a lot of trouble doing that to our children, um, though we should be doing it to our children to get them vaccinated. So I just, I, I think that there's a, a almost like a cognitive dissonance that's happening where uh, the older population doesn't think that they need to get those four or five vaccines. And so if we're, we're running into that difficulty, then we should focus on just getting one at a time and kind of chipping away at it. And I think that this, this article helps with that because it's getting it into the lay media saying getting a vaccine is important. 
Um, but to your point about just everything that's going on with, with Alzheimer's, the therapies that we have to quote unquote treat it are not super effective. All of the clinical trials that we've seen have failed. And so it's really like, how do we manage Alzheimer's from a public health perspective? And a lot of this goes back to a 2017 or a 2017 Lancet article that really defined nine potentially modifiable risk factors. And these nine risk factors are most salient in persons that are 45 to 65. Uh, so those that, that might not really be thinking about Alzheimer's initially when you're 45 years old, uh, but we wanna really look at low educational attainment. How do we encourage continued professional development or continue professional education, like taking CEs like this? Um, addressing midlife hypertension. So to your point, you talked about cardiovascular control. That's a huge risk, uh, modifiable risk factor with Alzheimer's. Looking at midlife obesity, so getting people to exercise and lose weight. Hearing loss is a rather interesting one um, that can lead towards Alzheimer's. And so making sure you get routine hearing checks. Uh, there are some pharmacies that now offer hearing aids, which I think is a really cool service that can happen in the community. Uh, late life depression, so making sure that we, we take care of ourselves, not just physically, mentally. Controlling our blood sugar and diabetes. Physical inact inactivity, so again, not just from the, the hypertension, the diabetes, obesity, but physical inactivity in and of itself. Smoking is another risk factor, so trying to do that smoking cessation. Uh, and then social isolation, and I think that's really interesting because it's about loneliness. It's the social determinant of health. Uh, there's data out there to say that that loneliness is the equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day wow. on our health outcomes. And so we have this huge opportunity to mitigate Alzheimer's by modifying these risk factors. Like that's where the data is. It's, it's all about lifestyle. And so I think it's really exciting that in the near future, we can probably start to see vaccinations and just being healthier added to this to really help out. Right. When we think about interventions that don't have a ton of benefit right now, but we kind of think that they may work, but the data is still weak, it's the Mediterranean diet. It's focused on omega-3 fatty acids. You know, there's some data that says drink a little bit of alcohol, but not too much alcohol, but probably no alcohol is probably best. Right. But that's, you know, super confusing because it's like the amount of coffee we should be drinking. All the stuff that's out there about antioxidants and yep. the vitamins, the B12, the B6, the folate, vitamin D, all of that kind of out the window. We're not really seeing any benefit from it. And in fact, there's even some specific ineffective therapies. So you talked about cholinesterase inhibitors treating Alzheimer's and us as, as patients and caregivers for those with Alzheimer's, thinking that that's going to reverse or treat it. And it really doesn't. It slows down progression even nominally at, right. at best. Um, right. But some patients even take it prophylactically to prevent Alzheimer's from developing. Uh, but that's kind of been de debunked in the, the literature. Right. Um, both some, some patients even use ENS heads. There's even some data about ginkgo biloba and using that. But again, we have all this information that says, we should be looking at Alzheimer's from a lifestyle, social determinant of health perspective, less on a drug perspective, which is then really, really interesting and really, really telling about all the drug failures that we're seeing in the clinical research. And what you alluded to earlier in today's uh, conversation is that everything we talk about with Alzheimer's, um, particularly Alzheimer's, not just dementia, but Alzheimer's, is about this idea of the, the amyloid plaque. And, and how those right. present on the brain and that causes Alzheimer's. And all of the research was really based off of a 2006 paper, which has been cited over 2000 times that, that really identified the amyloid AB star 56 as the primary amyloid plaque that when it appeared, 
it causes memory defects. So when exposed to ABCR56, we see memory defects. That's the amyloid plaque that we always talk about. A couple weeks ago, it has come out through Science, the journal Science, that that 2006 paper uh, actually had dockered images. So they were fake images. And so now all of the research that we looked at with amyloid plaque, there's still some benefit to it. But this can kind of be why we've started to see a lot of failure for these monoclonal antibodies, um, because the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's might not be what we thought it was, because we based everything off of this paper that that was unfortunately doctored. Um, So again, it goes back to that healthier lifestyle, address the social determinants of health and be vaccinated uh, as a way to to mitigate Alzheimer's, hopefully in our patients. Right. Yeah. I, you know, um, I like you read that paper and, you know, I, we talked a little bit before the show started about how, you know, you'd like to think that, you know, papers that are published in peer reviewed literature, especially, you know, big papers like that, that, you know, it, it's, it's really hard to, 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 to have any problems with them. And every two years, I think we always get smacked in the face, you know, and, you know, whether it's the, this paper, the Wakefield paper that erroneously, you know, uh, linked uh, uh, vaccinations to, to, to autism. And I mean, you know, again, it's worth noting that junk science can absolutely get published in large peer reviewed studies from peer reviewed journals. Uh, for a variety of reasons. So yeah, I mean, yeah, so that set the world of neurology, of course, back on its head, because, you know, how many untold billions of dollars have probably been spent in research and development following this, 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 this supposed path of pathophysiology that may actually be complete, you know, uh, uh, dust, uh, you know, that it really is, that really has, really has nothing to do with Alzheimer's. So yeah, so pretty sobering data. So anything you'd like to wrap up with before we sign off? Uh, no, I just, you know, we're, we're getting into what we, historically have called flu season where we kind of advocate for for patients to to get their vaccines Uh, and i think that that that's kind of been debunked with uh, the most recent uh, flu waves that we've seen over the summer because of covid and so you know what i would recommend is is recommend vaccines to your patients unless they until they get the vaccine or unless you're out of stock of the vaccine uh, for our daughter, we started her two-dose vaccine series because she's eight months right now uh, in May of this year. We had to actually talk to our pediatrician to say, look, the data says she should get vaccinated. We see flu in our in our communities, and she can get both series in before the product is expired by the end of June, and we want to do it. And so, you know, even as late as May, get vaccinated for flu. Right, absolutely. And if COVID has taught us anything, the 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 the, uh, the quote unquote flu season is kind of up on its head now, and, and we're really going to have to see, you know, uh, now that COVID has just kind of you know has become part of the of the uh, smorgasbord of of respiratory viruses that we you know walk around with every day. You know, what is that going to do to to uh, you know the the time of year when patients traditionally get the flu? So it's going to be very. This is going to be a very interesting uh, vaccination season. Um, and I and uh, you know I don't I don't particularly I kind of feel bad for for my fellow community pharmacists, because again, you know, there's almost certainly going to be a, a COVID booster in there someplace. And of course, we don't want to forget the, the influenza vaccine. So, um, you know, gee, you think you're busy now, uh, you know, you're in for some time of you ain't seen nothing yet. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping against hope that a large community pharmacy chains in particular will really step up and give the help that, 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 that the community pharmacists need. So, well, thanks again, Jake, for sticking around for this and talking about it. And uh, we will, I'm sure we'll have you on very, very soon again. Thanks, Jeff. Well, that's it for this week of uh, Game Changers. Again, thanks for listening. We will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Thanks for listening, then. 
Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes. And check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com, where we curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine to deliver straight to you. Join today to connect your learning to practice.